Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Atheist Alliance International Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Sylvester. Just before we get started, I'd like to remind everybody to please like and subscribe. Joining me again, uh, we've had him on the show before, is Dr. Daryl Ray, president of the uh, Reco- Recovering from Religion uh, and also the Secular Therapy uh, Project. And so Daryl's here. We, As I said, we had him on a couple of years ago, and he's, he's here to talk to us again. So Daryl, thank you for joining us. Um, glad to, glad to be on. back. Glad to be back, Jason. This will be an yeah. interesting conversation, I think. Yeah, I think so it was Andy, the previous host, who interviewed you last time. So this time is my, you and I have dis, had discussions, but this is the first time uh, right. you've been on the show with me. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So we were chatting just before the show. You were you were on the Canadian Atheist podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you were discussing the the incidents of um, sexual abuse among Catholic priests, and you you echoed a thought that I had had for quite a long time, but I, I've since changed my my position on that and that's kind of what i want to talk to you about okay so in in that episode you you have were saying that because of the abstinence that sort of is the cause and effect of these priests to act out in the way that they are and i had as i said i i i had that perception for the longest time but um i mentioned just briefly uh, and for our, our viewers so I've restarted watching the uh, TV series Criminal Minds about profilers, and they mentioned that they it said in passing in one of the dialogue that predators will seek out opportunities. And so my thinking on this has shifted that it's no longer that it's the abstinence that causes the aberrant behavior. It's the fact that these predators have sought out the priesthood as as cover. And so that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today. So sure, sure. Um, yes, I'm familiar with that argument. Um, it's undermined by quite a bit of other evidence. I would, I would say, uh, the, the notion that predators seek out opportunities, that's, that's a no brainer. I mean, yeah, of course they do. (laughs) But remember priests start, priests start their training oftentimes at age 12 or 13. You know, kids are not predators at 12 or 13. Their brains are still developmentally, um, in process. There's, there's a lot of brain development. There's a lot of psychological development that's happening at 12 and 13. When the hormones start flowing, I mean, until the hormones start flowing, the brain's going to stay stable or, you know, it's going to be pre-adolescent, uh, largely speaking. But then when the hormones start flowing, the brain starts moving in different directions. And, the, and our, our species is programmed to, um, to seek out who, what is the appropriate mate for me in this time, this place, this culture. And if, if you've noticed, and my I talk about in my book, Sex and God, every culture has different sexualities. It's remarkably remarkable how different sexuality is from one culture to the next. We are very, very fluid and plastic species when it comes to our sexuality. In some ways, like the bonobo apes that, you know, have sex all the time with any, anybody that wants to have sex, you know, between any, any combination. So we're very, we're very flexible and our brains have to, our brains are not programmed to know. It's like, you know, the locust that's out in my front yard now chirping as loud as it can to find a mate is programmed down to the gnat's ass about from their genetics. They know their genetics knows exactly what they have to do. And they're programmed to do that. We are not, we're not locusts. Our brains are programmed to simply say, you got a mate to reproduce yourself. Here's the real, real, real um, minimal structure, minimal framework around around what you need to do. You got to fill in the, the blanks. And so the brain is programmed to start filling in the blanks and it starts filling in by looking around its environment at age 12, 13, 14 years age. And so what is, what is attractive? In this environment, that's why you get cultures in South a- Southern Africa where women have steopigia. They have gigantic butts because that is attractive in that culture or was attractive in that culture for thousands of years. Or, or you go to other cultures where women have almost no breasts. 
that was attractive in that culture where women have large breasts whales whales far more women have large breasts than whales than have large breasts in japan what's going on there people we we are breeding ourselves so the brain is looking around saying what is attractive in this culture at this time that's why it can be so hard to find a mate sometimes if somebody moves from one culture to another because especially for males because males see in this in the culture i was born in here's what was attractive you move let's say you move from india to the united states you know or something some radically different culture like that you're going to have a hard time finding a mate oftentimes because your brain is already programmed for what's attractive in india and now you're trying to find a mate in a culture that doesn't that those attributes are not as attractive or not attractive at all and maybe unattractive so I'd say all this to say that the brain, and we've got tons of evidence that the brain is going through all these developmental phases at that time. Well, when do priests start their training? It's almost always in teenage, in, when they're young teenagers, even, even preteens in some ways. And, you know, for, for centuries, especially in Italy and Spain, you know, one of the boys was designated to be the priest in the family. So if you have 10 kids, one of them has to be a priest. And that kid's going to be put into a school situation or educational situation. It was oftentimes like the second second oldest boy, because the oldest boy is going to inherit everything. The second oldest boy is going to go be a priest because that, that way we don't have to support him. And, you know, he can be a status symbol for the family and all that. I mean, it's not that many years ago. That was a tradition in, in Italian families and, it's, and in Latino camp families oftentimes. So these people are being put into an educational system that starts their journey towards priesthood at 12 years old. What is the brain doing at that time? It's looking around saying, what is going on in my environment? Well, if you're in an all boys priest training school at 12 years old, they call it seminary. The only thing you see is boys and that the hormones are acting and you're gonna act on that behavior. You're gonna act on that urge. I was a teenager. I know what it's like to be horny as hell and anything around me looks attractive, right? <laughs> Jason, do you know this personally? <laughs> I, I know this, yes. I remember being, uh, speaking of, of, of God, and being, I remember a joke, This and we being Atheist Alliance International says, uh, having a daughter is God's punishment for us being 16-year-old boys. Yeah. <laughs> That's, there's a, a big element of, of truth to that. So I, I, I frame it all that, that way, Jason, because the uh, uh, developmental psychology is the important component here. And I don't hear anybody talking about that. And when I see people, um, see priests being arrested, I see priests uh, who have obviously molested and raped and done all sorts of horrible things with children, my first off thought is oftentimes I wonder where that person came from. They were not born a predator. Most of them were not. Now, we all know that there's psychopaths out there and maybe there's psychopaths that become priests. But let's not put them all in that category because it's really a, a, a small, tiny portion of priests that are probably psychopaths. The rest of them were, were just fucked up by this purity culture called celibacy in, in Catholicism. And think of all the messages that a 12-year-old kid's getting, that your body is your enemy, that you can't masturbate, that if you have sexual thoughts, you're, it's Satan talking to you. And you get those messages within the Catholic framework of a seminary, or you might get them in framework of a Sunday school and Baptist church, or you might get them as a Muslim or a Hindu. Those kind of messages are being given by the religious environment at the very time the the brain is trying to figure out what's the best way to find a mate and who is the appropriate mate for me in this culture in this time and, and and for whatever my gender identity is as well i don't know is this making is this makes sense it does is, is that still common today though that you know a boy who wants to be a priest is i mean like because today obviously they're not going into seminary at, at 12 or 13 they they might be altar boys or they're they know that's their career aspiration but they're they're not necessarily in that environment where they're they're being 
uh, grooming is the wrong word, but uh, groomed by the Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> but that they're being conditioned, you know, because they're not really entering seminary until they're what, 18, 19 years old by that point. No, that, that's not yes and no. Uh, when I use the word seminary, there's really two levels of seminary. And oftentimes there's all boys Catholic seminary schools that start at 12 or 13. They're not as common as they used to be. That's true. And that's partly why they're not, it's harder and harder to find priests. The United States cannot produce priests. And I, well, here's a, here's a crazy thing. I visited Ireland 10 years ago and they, they hadn't, they weren't producing any priests in Ireland. Yeah. They were importing priests from Nigeria. It was the craziest thing. So the, the ability to recruit priests have really dropped down, partly because you can't start recruiting them at 13 as like you used to. Well, think of the priests that are 60 years old today or, or older, and they're just now getting caught for what they did 20, 30 years ago. Where were those priests when they were 12 years old? Well, they were in the 1950s or 60s in one of those adolescent all boys seminaries. Very few priests actually, uh, back then, very few priests started at 18. They started earlier. It's not true today. I agree with you. It's it's more 18 and older now. And that's why you can't get any priests. I mean, 18 years old, who wants to go be a priest? Almost nobody. Because your hormones yeah. have gone, once the hormones start flowing, that's, remember the, the Catholic, the Jesuits used to say, give me the boy till seven, I'll give you the man. Well, yeah. what they're saying is if you give me, if you get, if I can get a hold of your kid uh, before the hormones start flowing and teach him all these horrible things, then by the time the hormones start flowing, the guilt will keep him back. As, as I write in my book, uh, The God Virus, the guilt cycle is what the whole church is based upon. So you got to teach the guilt. And then when the kid feels guilty about his sexual thoughts, you got to come back to Jesus, get forgiveness. He's going to do the sexual thoughts again or masturbate or have sex. You've got to come back to Jesus. The guilt cycle keeps you tied up within the framework of the religion you learn the guilt in. Baptists don't have Catholic guilt. Catholics don't have Baptist guilt. Uh, but both have guilt and they keep them entangled in the church. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that makes so sense. So the, the, the predator piece is a whole nother, I think that's a whole nother discussion. And, and I, I think the vast majority of priests that I'm familiar with, including and two, and I know two is not a huge sample, uh, but uh, two that I had clinical experience with and both were clear cases and both had started. Now I, I worked with them in the late eighties and they had, um, they had both started at 13 years of age. Uh, their families had told them you should be a priest and they, they went that direction. Go, go ask us priests or look at priest backgrounds and you'll see that a lot of them were, you know, um, their parents pushed them in that direction from a very early age. Yeah. There's an interesting book. I mentioned it on a previous podcast and I'll, I'll put the, the, the cover up for people to see. Uh, it's called In the Closet of the Vatican, done by a journalist around 2017, 2018. And he talks about the, the subtitle is about the hypocrisy of the, the the homosexuality within the church. That, you know, here's this church saying that it's a moral evil. And yet something like 80% of the senior clergy, like bishops and above, like the archbishops and cardinals, they're all homosexuals. But, they, you know, the majority of the powers that be now sort of came of age before the 1960s sexual revolution and the ones who've, who've come after who are, are more accepting and more open of it and there's this tension. So it's it's quite interesting that, and, and he makes the same point, you know, like you were saying about in Italy, that if you were, and this is probably the wrong way to say this, but if you were effeminate, I think was the word he maybe used in the book, you know, or a little more sensitive, you know, you're a young gay man and you're you're sensitive, and you're living in this macho culture, then so where do you go? You go into you go into the priesthood where you're not expected to have sexual relations with women, and you've got this inbuilt cloistered community of other gay men where you guys can have at it behind closed doors, and, and apparently none's the wiser, but you know history does not bear that out. So right, so. right, that's highly true. And then you look back at what um, 
let's say a child who who may you know at that point in time 12 years old may not know whether they're gay or not but the fact is or and this works for women too in in the nunnery you know going in yeah. the nun direction sure. but it, the brain is looking around saying uh who am i attracted to well you know if you're put into an all boys school and you already are attracted to boys you just <laughs> you just got put in seventh heaven you know that's exactly yeah. where you need to be but the, of course the religion is going to guiltify you and shame you for having these attractions but the church is the one that puts you in that spot and you're going to continue yeah. to seek that the rest of your life now here's another little thing uh i've studied and, and there's there's minimal literature on this unfortunately i don't it's really hard to study but fetishes for example uh we seem to especially males not females 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 are much more flexible flexible and i'm you know i'm speaking generically and i'm you know i'm not saying there's only one way to look at this but generally speaking most people are identify as male and most people identify as female i'm not talking about transgender people or bi or any of that pansexual i'm talking about people who have strong identities on each side those people especially males are um especially females are very flexible in their sexuality and they can change throughout a lifetime in and how they feel and identify about themselves there's a, a book written about 15 years ago called uh, gender fluid or sexual fluidity and it studied just women and really remarkable study on what happens to women over a period of about 15 or 20 years in in their sexual feelings identity and that stuff but but that's not the focus i want to talk about i want to talk about the other side males males at that age of 12 or 13 that's when fetishes seem to arise and males learn the fetishes or create or, or have fetishes um, become a part of their sexuality at that age and will probably stay in their stay a part of their attractions for the rest of their life so it could be foot fetishes it could be breast fetishes it could be uh you know furries it could be any number of things and there's <laughs> there's there's quite a bit of evidence that people uh who are exposed to certain stimulus in rats i mean there's we have actual experiments that we can create fetishes in rats <laughs> i know it sounds crazy but you can because when the brain is so focused on sex and sexuality and trying to figure out what's right it's going to take a lot of clues and cues and act upon those and and integrate those into its sexuality this is all unconscious it's not something people go about saying oh i think i want a foot fetish when i'm 50 years old that's not the way it works <laughs> so it's in some way shape or form some stimulus happens at 12 or 13 and the boys get focused on that and they will probably stay attracted to that for years well that's what's happening with priests at the same time at that age they're they're probably trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong what what works what doesn't and they're going to be exposed to different things and 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 they're going to get stuck on whatever that fetish is at that point in time well what's a 13 year old getting stuck on he's getting stuck on other 13 year old boys and so you see a high percentage of adult priests 50 years old that are that are predators for 13 year old boys who just happen to be you know they're altar boys it's a built-in system for giving you exactly what you're looking for because that's what they were attracted to when this fetish developed because that's the age they were when it developed that's it, exactly right so if you look at this from a fetish perspective and a developmental psychology perspective it makes a lot more sense that these 50 year old men are going after 13 year old boys which means you you want to keep your kid away from those men not because they're predators by birth but because they're predators by the system that created that the, the, does that distinction change or yeah. give you it does it does um so just let me maybe now's a good time to inject this quote so and we'll put it up on screen for people as i read it so just the backstory so richard sype was a former monk he was uh in the movie spotlight uh for those of you who've seen the movie spotlight when the reporters are talking on the phone to the to the counselor this is richard sype who who uh 
was on the phone. The character was played by, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, uh, who was the voice of, of They Never Show Him. Uh, he has a book called Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes. And let me just read this quote. Uh, citing two 1972 studies, Kennedy and Hackler's study was published and their findings concurred with those of Bars and Terui, concluding that just 7% of American priests were psychologically and emotionally developed 18% were psychologically and emotionally developing, 66% were underdeveloped, and only an 8% were maldeveloped. Kennedy and Heckler stated that the underdeveloped and maldeveloped priests, 74%, had unresolved psychosexual problems and issues that are usually worked, uh, worked through uh, adolescence, adding sexuality is, in other words, non-integrated into the lives of underdeveloped priests, and many of them function at a pre-adolescent or adolescent level of psychosexual growth. So this comes back to your point where you're being conditioned from the age of 12 or 13 as your sexual awakening, you're being told that sex is evil, uh, that you shouldn't masturbate, that this is something to be suppressed, and this is contributing to this underdeveloped psychosexual identity. Exactly, right, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I, go ahead. So that's a pretty scary statistic that only 8% of all American priests are actually are, are fully uh, psychosexually developed. The rest of the, like 92% of priests are struggling in, in some matter, manner with their sexuality and or their, their sexual yeah. maturity. I, um, I have never met a priest I thought had any, even, even, a, <laughs> even a cursory understanding of human sexuality. Now, I've been told they're out there, but I haven't met one. <laughs> Not a go around interviewing all the priests in the world, but anyway. Here's the thing. I think if you, and I and I would love to see this, um, that study replicated or, or at least understand that study a little bit more. The one thing I would ask the researchers is what age did the well, um, well-developed priests, what age did they enter the priesthood? And I think that alone might say a lot about why they're balanced because you you can't you can't have a good attitude about your body and sexuality until you've gone through the adolescence and early adulthood and probably done a little bit of exploration. I, I would say anybody that goes in the priesthood earlier than 24 years old probably is not fully ready, not sexually. They're, they haven't integrated sexuality into their into their personality and, and life. So now I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure you need that. I mean, the brain didn't even finish, the male brain especially, didn't even finish developing until 24. So how can you commit yourself to an entire lifetime of denial of the a most, one of the most compo important components of your whole life, and that's your sexuality. How can you do that? with, with some deny level of, it and have all this internal monologue about it being evil and has to be suppressed yeah, right it takes yeah. a soul on your psyches yeah, yeah. absolutely and, it's, it's, and i know i like but the, the eastern orthodox the jewish rabbis i mean they all marry and they all look at the that this development of of the celibate culture in, in in catholic priests around a thousand years ago as as it was a rather aberrant and strange behavior that you know this was yeah. not something common in other religions it was unique to the catholic church and for those who don't necessarily know the history it's it's quite interesting and in how it was related to property and I've, I've expressed this to catholics before so it's like think about it what happens when you die well you give your property to to your family so what's the best way for the church to to accrue, prop, accrue property is you know you don't have kids yeah right so well it is not it it is unusual but it's not unique um buddhists have got a lot of celibacy and they're monastic practices for both males and females and we see a lot of part, part of my um uh, assertion about what I've, I've said here is based not just on catholics but on buddhists if you look at thailand there's a spotlight uh, to use the title of the film there's a spotlight kind of controversy going on in thailand ongoing within the monasteries, the Buddhist monasteries there. Boys at the age of nine are being forced by their families and by the Buddhist religion to go into monasteries for the rest of their life. 
and they're being supervised by adult males much older than them. And there's enormous amounts of sexual abuse going on in those, both in both for girls and for boys. It's, it's almost exactly the same problem as I just discussed for Catholics. And it has the same effect. So you, again, you're, these men are not predators in this, since they were born that way, they're predators because they were nine-year-old boys who were themselves abused when they were forced into those uh, Buddhist monasteries. Buddhist, Buddhism is a nasty religion when it comes to sexuality. And I, I really argue strongly that Buddhism is, is as much a religion as anything else, unless you're in California, California Buddhism, who knows what that is. But it's certainly not what you see in Asia. It's not what yeah. you see in the... Uh, we we had uh, when the the coup took place in in Myanmar. We had uh, we had a gentleman on from the the, the Buddhist, uh, sorry, the the uh, Burma atheists, talking about how there there are senior, highly respected uh, Buddhist clerics in in Myanmar who are supportive of the of the military junta and the the crackdown on liberties. So there's there's definitely some. Uh, disconnect there between the perception of Buddhism and like this ultra conservative, uh, almost like the Christian right uh, yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Well, I, I mean, you've you're familiar with Thailand, I'm sure. Yep. And uh, you've probably seen the scandals that came out of the Buddhist monasteries. Started about five or six years ago, I think. Um, quite a quite a major scandal about, and it looked identical to what we see with our own. Catholic priest uh, stuff going on. Yeah. And they put behind closed doors, you know, you think you can get away with stuff. Yeah. And they literally have for centuries. It's a tradition in Buddhism and in Buddhist monastic life. But it was also a tradition in Catholic monastic life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's, there's so many examples out there and uh, um, of, of, especially, I mean, a priest, a priest raping nuns. In fact, the nunneries being subject to a given priest or bishop, it's almost like their harem. I mean, this, these examples go back centuries. I had and, a, a friend of mine told me, I haven't been able to, to independently verify it. I have looked for it, but I haven't found the confirmation who said that orphanages actually developed because so many nuns were being impregnated by priests. And that's how orphanages started. But I, I have not been able to independently confirm that. So, <laughs> Well, it has a ring of uh, validity to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, it? Well, and there's a lot of, uh, my, my partner is doing a research, she's researching, she, she gets on a kick sometimes and she's, uh, you've heard of the Magdalenas, maybe Magdalena. Yeah, Magdalene Andres, yeah, there's the yeah. Magdalene Sisters movie about how the, the nuns were abusing these girls, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm in Kansas City in the U.S., and uh, there was um, a similar kind of setup in uh, Kansas City, Omaha, uh, uh, several other cities. And they were they were orphanages. Uh, they weren't orphanages. They were for wayward girls. And so people, both Catholics or Protestants, could send their, quote, wayward girls here. Now, they may have been pregnant out of, quote, wedlock, which I hate that word. Or they could have just been girls that were didn't didn't obey their parents, you know, and they would send them here. And the, again, there was a laundry, but these girls were basically slaves, and the amount of sexual abuse is pretty obvious because, uh, well, there were several scandals around that, but the scandals were e were smoothed over in the night. This and this is the 1920s. I'm talking about literally a hundred years ago here in Kansas City, a laundry that had all sorts of girls being forced here uh, as prisons and used as slave labor, basically, and and sexual slaves for who knows the leaders or whatever. And there was it was it was pretty heinous. And the Protestants, pro, there were whole Protestant newspapers dedicated to just dissing the Catholics. And one of their targets was this this laundry thing. I, dang, I wish I could remember the name of the laundry. Anyway, it, she's researching and she's coming up with all sorts of stuff about what was going on there and how many scandals there were that just got covered over. 
And the Protestants were bringing this up over and over and over again. The Catholics said, oh, you're lying. We're not like that. You know, it's, it was it was really interesting discussion. And there's been something recently. Uh, there's been some some news reports uh, about the Southern Baptists or the, the, the Methodist convention, that the, the sex abuse within the Southern Baptist convention as well. Uh, yeah, there's there actually was a website. It's. It, it 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 went on for like ten years. I even write about it in my book, The God Virus. It was called uh, StopBaptistPredators.org. The website's still up. Last I checked, they just aren't updating it all the time. But the the fact was, there were thousands of Baptist ministers that had been arrested and even convicted and put in prison, and nobody knows about this. And and many of them were just transferred from one church to the next church or you know, we're able to get from one church to the next church. The Baptist sex scandal among the Baptist convention is is horrible. And and uh, some people have tried to step up and say, look, we need to deal with this. But there's a lot of people still trying to cover it up and uh, avoid it. But go to StopBaptistPredators.org. And, and if you look at the Freedom From Religion Foundation has a newsletter. And in their newsletter, they always dedicate one whole page, and I mean a big page, I haven't looked at it in quite a while, but to nothing but uh, ministers and priests that have been arrested. It's called the black collar page. <laughs> and uh, I don't know who does this, but they put every month, there's a whole hundreds, every month, this isn't like once a, a year, this is every month, a whole page full of, of clergy that have been arrested. And they're not, you know, they're not by a long shot catholic there most of them are baptists or or uh, independent baptists or pentecostals you know there's some version of protestantism there's a lot of sexual abuse but remember it's there's an interesting difference here we don't since celibacy is not a part of the protestant uh theology and practice there's a there's a different kind of sexual abuse going on it's not as much abuse of young boys as it is in the Catholic church, as it is rape of young girls in the Protestant church. I mean, more evidence for the, the theological culture or the practices imprint on the brain. Are you familiar with the notion of imprinting? Yeah. Okay, well, what you're having is the theological practices are being imprinted on the brain at that age. So Catholics are getting one kind of imprinting about their body and their sexual practices and attitudes about sexuality and Protestants are getting a different imprint just as bad, but focused in a different area. And all you have to do is compare religions and you'll see these differences start cropping up. Yeah. And it's uh, a lot of it comes back to the, the Christian attitude to, to sex, uh, not just necessarily the celibacy of the Catholic church, but just the, the sex is bad whole vibe. So, which a lot of that comes from, from Paul. So. Yeah, and, and, and the difference between purity culture, which is a um, Protestant notion, and celibacy and, and, um, and virginity and stuff like that, uh, which is more Catholic. I mean, these are, these both are so-called Christians, but there is different in many ways. Catholic indoctrination is quite a bit different than Protestant indoctrination. And then you, if you, and you compare those two, and then go out and compare Islamic indoctrination around sexuality, and you'll get a third angle, but just as bad, but a third angle. And then you can bring Buddhists in and look at that, and you'll get a fourth angle. But they're all coming from the same thing of what is being imprinted on the brain at early child, early adolescence, and that's what the religions want to do. They want to catch catch you when you're most impressionable and imprintable right which is why religion's having a tougher a tougher time as society is becoming more and more secular and kids aren't going just going to church you know as i i was raised you know i went to a, a protestant church growing up so you mentioned you mentioned the baptists and I'm, I'm reminded i i remember i was in a baptist private school when i was 13 and 14. um and I remember the guilt that I felt uh, over having sexual, you know, that this bird, uh, burgeoning sexual identity and the guilt that I felt um, uh, over this. So. Right, right. 
and and you were raised i'm assuming you were raised before the official purity culture came in probably yeah what, that sort of came out like in the 90s didn't it that was yeah more of a thing yeah it did so then they're having those purity balls and purity rings and <laughs> i mean it was it was creepy the dads it was an incestuous aspect to it you know the dads are giving their daughters a ring and saying i won't have sex until i'm married <laughs> yeah well, i you, mean the you the dugger kind you, of thing you live in the i can't remember you're on the kansas side of missouri side you're, but you're kansas city area right yeah i'm on the kansas side yeah. yeah okay so so i lived in kansas for five years i worked for sprint like over 20 years ago oh, and i yeah. had i had a number of of evangelical christian right colleagues and it was kind of like they're at work you know and they're like evangelizing and oh you should come to church with me and I'm like oh, yeah i don't think so you know yeah right yeah. oh so I, yeah uh that's overland park that's just like 20 miles yeah. from my house uh the yeah. sprint yeah. the the yeah. sprint campus that's no longer sprint of course but well yeah. that's cool, i worked so. i was i worked at the sprint campus so we were one of the first departments to to move in there when it was oh and the, on so. the new campus you were there yeah yep. oh my gosh we are one of the first the first to move in so oh that's so, cool spe and speaking of kansas so there's there's a good book and we'll put it up for people as well uh he's from i believe i'm pretty sure this guy's name is james brendich he's he was i don't know if he still is a professor at the university of kansas who wrote a book and let me get the title right law sex and christian society in medieval europe which is a really a fascinating study if you're interested in the psychology oh, for people yeah. um and he's got a really fascinating section where he talks about so all of the sort of the rules around marriage like what you can do like as a married couple around sex didn't come from the like the priesthood lecturing to the married couples it came out of the monasteries because the monks who are supposed to be celibate and chaste are all fiddling each other and so all of these rules um what are they, what are they called uh, i can't remember the name escapes me at the moment uh, but they had this list of, you know, behaviors and, you know, you must do penance. Uh, you know, if, if you get caught doing this, you have to do penance. And if it's this sin, it's penance. And the worst sin of all was oral sex because, you know, that was even even worse than anal sex was, was for, you know, these monks to be performing oral sex on each other. They thought that was like the most sinful thing. Uh, like and like even like even bestiality was was less of a sin than oral sex. So like you know go you can screw the 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 sheep from the the, the monastery, but you know blowing your blowing your fellow brother that's that's. You know, that's so. uh, well, I've got a, what's the name of that book? Law, sex, and what? Law, sex, and Christian society in medieval Europe by James Brendage. So, and he was he was at University of Kansas. So, if he's still teaching, maybe you can reach out to him and maybe have a, a chat with him. I am fascinated by that. I've um, I love medieval uh, stuff, and uh, I've got several books on my shelf. I'm looking at right now about uh, medieval history and uh, uh, yeah, Barbara Tuck really. Barbara Tuckman's book on on medieval history was cool. What? Yeah, he made a very fascinating point that most Catholics today are not aware of. Like they say, like marriage is a sacrament. Yeah, only for the last eight hundred years. And Brundage right. makes the point that marriage becomes a Catholic sacrament as they try to exert more and more control over people's private lives and what they can and can't do in their marriage. Uh, so marriage was not a sacrament for the first 1200 years of Christianity. It, it's only the last half. So. It, exactly right. Uh, Barbara Tuckman writes in her book um, on, uh, uh, gosh, I, uh, I can't remember what the name of the book is. I'm trying to look at it on my shelf, but she writes about that very thing that there were, there were entire sections of society that did not marry there was no married ceremony they just moved in together when they were ready or they got pregnant and they just moved in together it was only later when and, and except for the upper um as you mentioned earlier the upper echelons of society where property was an issue yeah. but who cares if a couple peasant people get married or not there's no property there so there's yeah. no incentives well, that's, that's actually one of the points brendage makes that it was the church actively trying to break the power of the landed aristocracy because you would divorce your wife and and you would you would have another marriage of convenience you know for some political alliance and so the church 
trying was trying to actively stop that that mm -hmm. you know you marry you marry for life you can't just d divorce your wife and marry somebody else and that effectively broke the power of these great landed aristocracies to resist the power of the church so. right right uh, this is a little bit off topic but there's kind of a reverse thing that was happening very early in church history and i'm i'm gonna bet that you've never heard of this issue but if you think about it around the Levant, around the Mediterranean in general, there were quite a few polygamous societies, societies that allowed men to have multiple wives. Judaism was one of them. Uh, Rome thought that was a weird practice because Rome practiced what we think of as monogamy, although it's really not. But so, so think of this, Paul is expanding. Paul is going around and the other apostles or whoever uh, and they're they're interacting. They're they're Jewish themselves, and Judaism did not outlaw polygamy until the 1100s. You could literally legally in a, in Jewish cultures have multiple wives until the 1100s. It was not illegal. So Jesus never condemned Herod for having 14 wives. Nobody says a bad a bad word about David. You had uh, Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and concubines, and David, who you know murdered people to get a wife and multiple wives. So you get all these wives because it's a polygamous culture, and there were many others. Uh, the um, uh, Carthaginian culture, based on the Phoenicians, was a polygamous culture. So there's a lot of these. What happens when the Jewish, these Jewish guys who are from a polygamous culture? start going out into the Mediterranean and trying to proselytize among other polygamous cultures. You don't read anything about that in the, in the New Testament. There's no condemnation of Herod for having multiple wives. Yet we know that people who had multiple wives, obviously were landowners, obviously were wealthy, they were being converted. How do you convert those people and say you can't have multiple wives, which which really wasn't true. Even Judy's tradition didn't say you, you couldn't have multiple wives. I mean, where in the New Testament does it talk about that? There's only one spot and it says men, uh, a, a bishop should be uh, a man of only one wife. Yeah, That's all it says in all, I think it's in Timothy, I can't remember. So, it's, so. All it's, it's all that is said in the New Testament. So basically the New Testament ignores one of the most central practices to Judaism and central practices to many of the cultures they're interacting with. Yeah. So there's probably a 200 years of polygamy being practiced among Christians and nobody's saying a word about it. Yeah. Ultimately, implic implicit in that implicit in that Bible verse about the bishop and his wife is the fact that the clergy is married. Yeah, the clergy is married. And oh, by the way, Everybody else can have multiple wives. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't say anything about anybody else having, all it says is, is the elder or the bishop or whatever the word is. Now, fast forward 100 or 200 years, the church is starting to lock in on this monogamy notion, especially, especially for the upper class. And what they're gonna have to do is say, okay, uh, Jason, you can convert to Christianity and we'll overlook the fact that you have three wives as long as you know that your sons cannot have more than one wife from here on out there's no more polygamy well it's stopping with you and you're okay with that because it doesn't really affect you it affects yeah. your sons and maybe you get the benefits of whatever the church brings to you in terms of you know status or whatever i don't know anyway there's there's all sorts of stuff that's kind of interesting i think is when if you get dig down into religious history and medieval history and all that that we don't even think about it we just think in fact one of my one of my key points i make in, in my book sex and god is that christian sexuality is not normal sexuality it's pretty damn abnormal and so let's look at other cultures look at how other people express their sexuality the most abnormal most perverted sexuality i can imagine is catholic priest sexuality that is perverted forcing somebody to be to deny every single cell in their body is sexual and yet you're forcing somebody to deny them anyway we, that the church is confronting right that they're uh, they're looking to have to relax that 
that prohibition to try to get some priests in to, to fill the ranks. So. Yeah, they're going to go the, the route of the um, Eastern Orthodox if they're not careful. <laughs> yeah. Not that that's, I don't care which way they go. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. how are we doing? Have we covered Good. this territory you wanted to cover? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So, I mean, just like I said, I mentioned like, that I saw your, your other podcast with the Canadian Atheist talking about that, and it just it was a subject I wanted to delve into. Um, as I said, like, you know, it seems to be that my my impression was that it was pred the predators that were uh, seeking out the priesthood as, as a cover. And I'm sure to, to some percentage that that is the case. But as you say, a lot of it is this this maladjusted psychosexual uh, approach that, that manifests itself in this aberrant behavior. Well, the culture creates the predators. I'm not denying that people don't in go about trying to, well, it, uh, think about what job you don't you you seek the job that fits your likes interests personality training why'd you get that training because it seek it it fits your likes and personality well it, it sounds benign it sounds are kind of ludicrous to compare but what are your likes and and preferences sexually you do the same thing you're going to seek out places that fulfill that fetish or that interest or that attraction in the same way that you seek out jobs that fit your that whatever the profile is for your skills and, and interests so i i think I, let me let me make sure i frame before we finish our talk i, I want to frame it in one way and that is let's uh, let's look at people with compassion first i am not denying that there aren't true predators true psychopaths out there that's a fact i'm not denying that but most people are not predators most people are not psychopaths most people are simply the victims of the training they got as a child and they're themselves dealing with religious trauma i mean somebody who is blamed for their for their own natural normal sexual thoughts and put down and shamed and even persecuted, even bullied because of those, there's, and it's directly related to their religious training, that's gonna cause trauma. And I'm gonna suggest that a lot of the priests that, that have been a part of this abuse are themselves victims of religious trauma. Nobody will talk about that. They won't talk about how does the damn church traumatize people Think about the brainwashing and, the, I, well, I don't like using that term. I shouldn't use that term. Think about the, the imprinting and the indoctrination that's happening at that age. And these are innocent children that have no control over their fate at 12 years old. And their parents are forcing them in, their church is forcing them in, their culture is forcing them in. There is no escape. And so they are, in my talks, I, I show a picture of a tree. I, imagine a tree that goes up and then it's got a crooked spot and then goes on up it's you know goes up over and up i took a picture of that tree it's 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 in my yard the reason that tree is like that is because another tree fell on top of it when it was young i went out and i i didn't realize this it stayed there for a year or two i went out and i saw it and i chopped up the dead old tree got it off of the young tree well that young tree had already been bent over when, when the tree, the big tree fell on the young tree, then the young tree is now flat on the ground. And so this part starts growing up. So now we've got a tree that goes up over and up again. That tree is distorted for the rest of its life. And it has a weak spot. It will not withstand the, the winds that we have in Kansas, as well as the other trees that are just straight up. Well, think of this, that as a metaphor for human development. That Catholic priest has a distorted sexuality and they will have that distorted sexuality the rest of their life. They were victimized. Another big tree fell on them. It's called the Catholic Church or the Baptist purity culture or the Buddhist monk trading. I don't care what it is. It is distorting. That's why the subtitle of my books is called uh, How Religion Distorts Sexuality because that's what religion does. It takes normal sexual development and distorts it in dramatic ways that really cause behavioral problems later. 
it's kind of amazing that more people haven't come out of their religious upbringing more warped you know i mean growing growing up like you know i went to church every sunday i had quite a few friends who were regular churchgoers <coughs> you know even though we're, we're secular now you know it's, it's amazing there isn't more of a warping but maybe you know i grew up in a a very moderate protestant church so there wasn't a lot of other than that two years in a baptist school you know so i wasn't really getting that imprinting to to warp my view of of normal sexuality so well i'm going to suggest that you and I, I don't i don't i don't know you jason i can't make any assumptions about you <laughs> but people who have gone through what you went through i've obviously interacted a lot I run, I run or help run the organization that I started recovering from religion and fully 50% of all the people that come to us are come to us with serious religious sexual issues. And probably the other 50% are too, but that wasn't the presenting problem. Presenting problem may be, you know, I'm, I'm now atheist and my wife's still religious. What do I do? Well, that could, there could be an element of sexuality and oftentimes is, but what I'm saying is that, I come across a lot of atheists that still have shame around simple, basic things like masturbation or looking at pornography. Or, or more importantly, I see a lot of atheists that believe there's something, there's something called porn addiction or sex addiction. And that's bullshit. Go look at my talks on that or go read the books, The Myth of Sex Addiction by uh, David um, Lay, Dr. David Lay. There, there's a lot of myths that are religiously based that atheists still believe or still feel shame about. I, I, I have an, an acquaintance, an atheist acquaintance that absolutely cannot perform cunning lingus on his wife because he was taught at a very early age that was, that was wrong, that was sinful, that was nasty or whatever, the, whatever he was taught. So... <laughs> So his, his wife gets no pleasure out of, or not as much pleasure as they could maybe, but it's because of his religious training. He's a fucking atheist. He's been an atheist longer than I have. He was an atheist at four, you know, a teenager. He's, he was still, he's still lingering, that's still there. In, in the Absolutely. Background. So when I talk about that tree and the distortion, the distortion is oftentimes permanent. It is hard to get over. Now, he might have been able to get over it. I don't, I don't think he had the desire to, which is his business. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to interfere with that. Uh, but he, he admits, you know, I just can't get over that. Uh, but I also don't want to, I don't need to. Uh, they seem to have a perfectly happy, fine life. So I, I'm just saying it just because you, you don't think you were affected, you may have been affected. You've just adjusted so well to it or or never experienced it that you know no big deal and there's nothing wrong with that I, i'm not saying anybody needs psychotherapy because they don't you know want to go down on their wife <laughs> but but let's admit that that came from religion and you're an atheist you no longer believe that religion i don't know how many people tell me i still feel guilty about masturbating or i can't talk to my spouse about sexual sexual fantasies that i have well, you're a damn atheist and your spouse is an atheist. Why can't you talk? Where did you learn shame around talking about sexuality? Well, you learned it from your religion and you're, a, you're an atheist. I call you a Christian atheist because you're still affected by Christian doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I just adjusted better. As you said, I like, I just, <laughs> I rejected it all and like got rid of it. And so, yeah, moving on with my life. So. You are you are one of the lucky few. I tell you, we 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 who are really deeply infected by the damn religion, or look up to people like you and say, "Darn, wish we'd have had that." The brains that you have. <laughs> yeah, my my ex, her sister was a devout Catholic and was a, I think was a virgin well into her twenties. Like had a law degree, and I was like, "Sex is a is a natural." urge you know it's it's nothing sinful about it go out and enjoy your life and she did and she got pregnant and then she blamed me for it i'm like i didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't tell you to have unprotected sex i said just go out and enjoy your life <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah well there's a lot of research that shows that people who are raised in those purity cultures 
are much more likely to get pregnant because they didn't have, uh, or get STDs uh, because they didn't have protection. Uh, my own research um, revealed that as well. But can we talk briefly? Uh, I don't know how much sure. time we've got here. I would really like to talk briefly about Recovery from Religion and the Secular Therapy sure. Project in case your listeners are uh, needing in need of help or know someone who is in need of help. Uh, I just want people to know about Recovery from Religion and that you we have a hotline, of a helpline we call it, that people can call, they can chat in, a chat line. All they have to do is go to recoveryfromreligion.org, hit the chat button and talk to one of our really well-trained agents. We've got over 450, last I looked, 451 trained trained agents, trained volunteers. They may not all be uh, on the helpline. And they're here to help you and they're well-trained. They're not gonna convert you or deconvert you. Their job is just to listen and help you find the resources to deal with the problems that you're facing with life. For example, you're a you're a brand new atheist or you're agnostic or you're or you're just questioning your religion and you don't know what to do with your two kids that you raised religious we got tons of resources for that uh or you're you know you've you're coming out gay in some way shape or form or queer and you don't know what to do about that because your religious family will disown you or you're a young kid in, in a Mormon church or in a Mormon family in Utah, and you don't believe what you're being taught, you name it, we've got a resource for it. So I'm just here to tell you, call us, chat in with us. We want to help you in your journey, and we meet you where you're at. We do not try to convert. We do not try to deconvert. We meet you where you're at, and we help you go where you want to go. If you need more help than that, you can, we can also connect you to a secular therapist through the seculartherapy.org, uh, seculartherapy.org. You can register as a client and you can find a therapist that won't send you back to church, won't tell you that your depression is because you're an atheist. I, I'm telling you stuff that people we've heard over and over again, or, or a, a counselor that will listen to you for three or four weeks and then think, why don't we pray about this? <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding you. There are so damn many counselors out there that are pushing their religion in the name of psychology. And religion is not a psychological a technique. So uh, we, we vet our therapists so that we know they're not gonna send you back to church or ask to pray with you or tell you your problems are because you're an atheist. That's just, that's ludicrous. And if you want to help us, you can always donate. We have a big fundraiser coming up on the 24th of June, this month that we're talking. And it'll have all big big people like Matt Dillon, he's going to be helping us. Jimmy Snow's going to be helping us. Seth Andrews is going to be helping us. Shannon Q will be helping us. Anyway, it'll be a, kind of like a telethon, I guess you could say, for five hours. And we're starting a, our fundraiser right now. You can just go to recoverfromage.org and hit the donate button and help us because we, all of our services are free. We don't charge one dime for anything that we, we offer people. Uh, we also have a, every fall and it's coming up soon, we have a fall excursion. We don't like the word retreat because it's too religious, but we call it excursion and it's gonna be held in the beautiful mountains of East Tennessee. And we'll have, I don't know how many people, we're almost sold out. In fact, we may be sold out by the time I'm telling you this but it's, uh, it's a place for all, for people to come and gather, to hear some good talks in beautiful mountains and a beautiful lodge and just enjoy uh, hearing each other and hearing talks, and telling our stories, you know, help, helping each other deal with their own religious trauma, if you will. It's, a, it's, it's the height of my whole year is going to the excursion and just interacting with people who are recovering from religion. So that's, that's my spiel. Jason, thanks for letting me uh, give my sales pitch, so to speak. No, yeah, and we'll, we'll have the links in the description. So anybody who's looking to, to connect with these, these organizations, you can find the links in the description and you can go, as he said, if it's you or somebody you know, please, by all means, reach out. So Great. And thank, thank you, Daryl, for setting those up for people. And, and thank you for your time coming on today and talking with us about this. Glad to, always glad to spread the word. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. <laughs>
well, you do know that I am the high priest of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Okay. So I, I, I can get away with spreading the gospel as long as the FSM's, FSM's gospel. Ramen. <laughs> Pass the garlic bread. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Daryl. And just before we close up, just like to remind everyone, please like and subscribe, and we will see everybody on the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks for listening and don't forget we're on YouTube, so follow us on YouTube. Just search for Atheist Alliance International and please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We're also on all of your favourite podcast platforms, so make sure that you follow us on there as well. See you next time.